Uh, if you're a part of the Oak Hill family email list, and if you aren't, you should see our church administrator before you leave today. If you're on that list, you should be getting each and every week uh, an email that we call the Tuesday Tidbits. How many guys get it? Awesome. Um, that is where we remind you about what's coming up that week, what's on the calendar, and also look forward to the coming month or so as we say, hey, look, here's some things that should be on your radar. Also included in that Tuesday Tidbits is something we call the Recommended Article of the Week. And just recently, I have been so blessed to hear that some of you are really digging into those articles, and not only are you enjoying them, but they're building you up in your faith, which is fantastic news. Now, you may have noticed, if you pay attention to those recommended articles, that there's one name that comes up fairly frequently, somebody that I, I put a link in that email to, and that is a Canadian pastor and a blogger by the name of Tim Challies. For me, Challies' writings have always been an encouragement as a fellow pastor, but somebody who's very theologically sound, just a really uh, uplifting writer. But in November of 2021, he posted something completely out of the blue that just took me by surprise. Because the reality is, is when you follow somebody on social media, you really don't know them, right? You really don't know what's going on in their lives. Well, it turns out Tim and his wife lost their adult son in a very sudden way. And uh, in fact, there's the picture of the family. And you see there, his name was Nick. He was 20 years old. He was at college, um, living uh, what appeared to be a very normal life as a 20-year-old would do. And in the middle of a game, just a regular day, he collapsed and died from a previously unknown heart condition. And Tim Challies took some time off from his blog, and then suddenly, boom, here was this post, and it, was, it rocked me. Let me read uh, the first three paragraphs of that post, and that will set the, the tone for what we're talking about today in John's Gospel. Here's what he wrote. At one of the many shipyards dotting Canada's east coast, another great ocean-going vessel is very nearly complete, and in just a few weeks it will begin to transport containers across the Atlantic. But before it can embark on its maiden voyage, it must endure a strict regimen of tests. Waters will fill the dry dock, and for the first time, this great ship will float, its propellers will rumble to life, and it will slowly steer into deep waters where it can test its mighty engines, its mechanisms for steering, and its systems of navigation. It must also test its anchors, for no ship can safely venture to sea that does not have working anchors. Yet the captain knows that the anchors can only truly be tested in a storm. It's when the storm is rising, when the winds are howling, when the waves are crashing against the hull, that the anchors are put to their fullest test. I first professed Christ in sunny days, first claimed his promises when everything was calm and still. I cast my anchor and latched it onto the rock on a day when the surface was undisturbed by the least of wind or wave. And at many times I have marveled at how easy my life has been, at how little suffering and sorrow I have experienced along the way. The anchor of my faith has held fast, but I've always known it has never faced more than a mild pull a gentle strain. I've always wondered if it could withstand much more. As a ship's anchors are put to the test in a storm, my faith has now been put to the test in these days of sorrow. The moment Nick died, it was like a great hurricane struck my life. The wind suddenly blew hard, the rains poured down, the waves rose fierce and strong, and the chain pulled taut. 
And I couldn't help but wonder if it might break free. Now later, I will get to how he finished this article, but for now, let me ask the question as we prepare to go to God's word. As Christians, how are we to feel and what are we to do when trouble like this arises in our hearts? When our world gets so rocked, when our futures look so unclear that we're not sure how we'll get through it. Grab your Bibles, let's turn to the end of John 13 and we're going to see how. very end of John 13. Last Sunday, we didn't quite finish the chapter. We ended at verse 35, but not only are we going to finish the chapter today, but we're going to go into chapter 14. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) We're flying. Uh, We're going to cover the first six verses of chapter 14 too, which have some of the most beloved statements in all of the New Testament, the beginning of chapter 14. So this is going to be a great day. Let's back up to verse 33. We'll read the passage in context. Remember, Judas has now run off into the night, into spiritual darkness, and now Jesus is free to address his true disciples, the 11, in that upper room, but he has some very hard news for them, right? Verse 33, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, in last Sunday's message, we dug into that new commandment of love. So if you weren't with us uh, this past week, you can go to our church website or to our YouTube page and listen to that. What is biblical love and how do we apply it in the local church? By the way, the timing on that message could not be more perfect based on where we're at in our calendar. We've got all of our, all of our ladies' grove groups that are starting up right now. We've got community groups starting next week. All kinds of opportunities, practical ways to love one another as Christ has loved you. So don't miss those opportunities. Okay, how does Peter respond now to this very hard news that Jesus has just delivered to the 11? Look at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Peter is like that that overly enthusiastic kid who sits in the front row of every class and shoots his hand up. Question, teacher, question, where are you going? Like he missed the whole, it appears like he missed the whole commandment about love. He's so locked in right now on on what Jesus has just said about, about leaving, right? And Jesus says to him, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. That's a great promise, right? But you will, Peter, you will follow later. It's still not quite good enough for Peter, right? Once again, as he's prone to do, he oversteps his bounds and he demands from the Lord more information, more detail. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why? Okay, if you've had kids, you know, you know that the why question is all over. Every time, why? Well, why, dad, right? He says, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you, he says. Oh boy. Right now, we've said a a bunch of times already in the Gospel of John, we all love Peter because we admire his enthusiasm and we know that if we had been in that situation, we'd probably do the very same thing. We're all knuckleheads like Peter, okay? So, So we love him, right? But one thing is certain, Peter is no Judas. That's what he wants to make clear. He is not a betrayer. He is as loyal as the day is long. And he knows that It's a disciple's duty to follow the rabbi. So if the rabbi's going, I go. 
I will go, I will protect him, I will fight for him if I need to, I will lay down my life for him. As I said, it appears that Peter's so locked into that question of where Jesus is going that he misses the whole commandment about love. What Peter wants in that moment is for Jesus to know that above all the other disciples, his commitment is unshakable. I'm your guy, Jesus. I, I, I love these guys, but man, I am your guy. I will lay down my life for you. I'll pay any price. But as the saying goes, Peter has gotten out over his skis, hasn't he? Verse 38, Jesus answered him, will you? <laughs> will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. That's basically within the next six hours, you will deny me three times. Ouch. Ouch. Can you imagine? Try to imagine, picture the, the look on Peter's face. To have your beloved Lord say that to your face and in front of the other guys is really painful. I'm sure he was stunned because he feels in his flesh, in, with all of his heart, that, that that can't be true. I would never deny Jesus. I would never do that. He sincerely believed that. Have you ever done that before? You felt so strongly about something that you made a promise only to find out later, I had no idea what I was promising. And you regretted it. So let this be a lesson to all of us. The one who is most confident that he's not going to fall is usually the one who is most likely to fall. Why? Because when we get that confident, what it comes down to is, is we're boasting. It, this is about self-promotion. We're trying to prove something to someone else, and that is not a godly response. It's a selfish response. So we boast in our natural loyalty and our natural strength, not divine strength, but natural. But then when the time of testing comes, that natural strength, that natural sense of loyalty, it doesn't stand up when the pressure comes. And I don't think we should doubt that Peter was a strong man. He was. He's a fisherman, right? No doubt he was very sincere. In his flesh, he wasn't lying. He really did think that he was ready to die for Jesus, but the Lord knew otherwise. The Lord knew that once the forces of darkness applied pressure to Peter, that he would fold. And what's about to happen to Peter is going to devastate him. That's coming in future messages. All right, so let's recap the state of mind of the 11 now in this upper room that night. Jesus started by saying, look, one of you is a traitor. That would have been stunning. One of you is going to betray me. And then he said, look, our time together is about to come to an end. I'm going away, and I know you followed me for three years, but this time you cannot come with me. That in itself, just that would have been shocking and confusing. They're sort of reeling from this. They're troubled. And then it gets worse. Peter objects, and at this point, all the guys are looking to Peter. He's the strong one, right? And they see that even Peter isn't going to make it through the night without denying the Lord. How can that be, they must have thought. Things have just got doubly confusing and downright scary. The, the other guys are like, what on earth is coming tonight? That this is all happening. Remember, it st this started out as a really exciting Passover meal, right? And then one thing after another, one domino after another falls all the way to Peter is going to deny the Lord. Wow. Their hearts are troubled, is what John tells us. And we can look at this word in the Greek. Their hearts are troubled. It's the same root word that John used to describe how Jesus was feeling, troubled in spirit, when he announced that there was a betrayer at the table that night in the upper room. The word means agitated, anxious, or distressed. 
So back to that question I asked, as Christ followers, how do we feel? What are we to do when trouble like this arises in our hearts? Let's turn over to chapter 14 now and look at verse 1, and we're going to get the answer from the Lord himself. How do we feel? What do we do when trouble arises in our hearts? Now, Jesus obviously knows his guys are struggling. He's going to address it directly in verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, I find this amazing. Jesus is in the midst of his own distress here, right? John said he's troubled in spirit. Not only does he realize that a close friend has betrayed him, but he knows crucifixion is coming within a matter of hours. How many of you guys would be distressed by that? And yet he lays that aside to serve these distressed brothers, right, in the room. He lays that aside so he can comfort them. This is another example of how Jesus loves. He sets aside his own troubled spirit in order to comfort the other guys. Now, he's gonna, how is he going to do this? He's going to give us two key things to focus on in the midst of rising trouble. Before we get to that, let me just start with something I think is really important to put on the table to acknowledge this morning. At times, every single person in this room finds our hearts and our minds in a state of distress or anxiety. Every single one of us goes through this, right? Life in this world will kick you around. Can I get an amen? So we face all kinds of pressure and difficulty and things that weigh heavy on us. I call these things the big sigh moments. Do you ever just, I do this sometimes, I'll go back to my, my home office and I'll sit down and just go, <sighs> right? And just pause and just, okay, this is tough. We all go through this, right? Where you're just, it's a big sigh. Like, I, how am I going to get through this? This is really hard. And as we noted, even Jesus felt troubled in his spirit, right? At the prospect of what he was facing. So listen, there is no sin in acknowledging this. There's no sin in acknowledging that you're going through something difficult or that you're struggling. There's no sin in saying to a brother or sister, hey, I could use some prayer and some help right now. I'm really going through it. In fact, that should be a, that should be a normal reaction for us to be able to share that with a trusted friend. Here's the thing. As Christians, we're not called to live in denial of reality. We're not called to plaster a smile on our face and act like everything is just great all the time. And I know sometimes we do that. We put a mask on, right? We want to hide things. We just want to make everybody think that my life is so smooth and so good and I'm so squared away and so godly that nothing bothers me. Not only are those people fake and annoying, they deny what Jesus promised, that in this life you will have trouble. So there's no sin in acknowledging that. There's no sin in feeling like, man, my spirit is troubled. But, here's the big, you know but was coming, right? But what can become sin is what you do next or what you don't do next. What do you do when your spirit is troubled? Choosing to wallow in that trouble is sin. Choosing to rehearse it over and over again in your mind as if there's no remedy available to you in Christ so that you just sit in the weeds forever, that's sin. Choosing to play up your struggles as a means of gaining attention from other people is sin. To play the victim, right? The, to, to revel in your status as a victim, whether that's in your conversations or whether that's on social media, that is sin. Holding on to your troubles and then trusting in your own resources rather than going to the Lord and presenting your, your troubles to him is sin. 
growing angry and withdrawing from God rather than staying thankful and praising him as you come to his throne in the midst of the storm. If you don't do that, that's sin. Refusing to renew your mind biblically, believing lies rather than believing what is good and true, it's sin. So it's what you do with that troubled spirit that matters or don't do. That's what is important. Now you may say, Jeff, that sounds really harsh. Is it really sin? Well, look at how Jesus says it in verse one. Do not let your heart be troubled. Friends, this is a command. This is an imperative. Do not let, he says. It's a command. That implies you have a choice in the matter, that you don't have to be victimized by your circumstances. You don't have to be victimized by your feelings. There is a remedy for your troubled heart. And as I said, Jesus gives us two things to focus on when this trouble comes. The first one's right there in verse one. Believe in God, believe also in me. And you're like, that sounds pretty simple. That sounds like too simple. Jesus says, don't let sinful anxiety take root in your heart. Instead, believe. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, let's let's recap for a second. These 11 men are, are good, faithful Jews, right? They had been raised from childhood to trust in Yahweh whom they couldn't see or couldn't touch. And so Jesus is challenging his disciples to apply that same truth to himself. Don't be distressed that I'm going away and that you can't follow me, he says. You believe in God, don't you? Yes. Can you see him? No. Does he have a physical body that you can touch? Of course not. Well, you're not going to be able to see me in the same way you've seen me for these past three years, but I challenge you now to believe and trust in me in the same way that you've always believed and trusted in God the Father. I will be just as real in my absence as I've been while I was walking with you. This is the point he's trying to make. Now, we know what's coming soon, and that is he's going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell them as well. So there's even more help coming, but he's challenging them. Look, you believed in Yahweh, God the Father, in this way. Now believe in me the same way. Notice the the obvious theological implications of this, right? As many times as we've seen this in the John's Gospel, it always amazes us, right? He's equating himself with Yahweh here. You can't miss it. Trust in God, trust also in me. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's making all those connections here. But listen, the first key to overcoming that troubled heart is to remember who God is and believe. Believe. Now, believe in what? Well, there's a couple things that you should believe. And and these are just maybe three bullet points to put on your mirror in the bathroom, whatever it is. First of all, believe in his sovereignty in the midst of the storm. I know you're like, oh, the sovereignty word again. It covers everything in the Bible. It's who God is. He had trust in his sovereignty. He's in control of those circumstances that you're in right now. He is. Even when life gets hard, go to him. We sang it this morning. You heard it in Tim Challey's article. Go to him as your shelter in the storm. He's sovereign over it. Ask him for that peace that he promises, that peace that surpasses all understanding. Do you trust? We talk about it a lot, but will you practically do it? Trust that God is sovereign over it. Secondly, believe in his goodness. Believe in his goodness. Trust that he's planning to bring something good out of this trial. Look, I, I know Tim Challies was struggling with that, right? Really, Lord, you're going to bring something good out of this? He will. If you trust in his sovereignty and his goodness, you can get through this. Trust that God wants to grow you through this 
trial, that he wants to mature your faith, that you're going to come out the other side. It's going to be hard, but as you come out the other side, your faith will be stronger. Trust in his sovereignty, trust in his goodness. And then last, believe in his promises. Believe in his promises. Trust that he has called you to himself. He has made you his own and he has promised you what? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So you're going to feel in the midst of the storm like God has distanced himself. He hasn't. He hasn't. We might have. We might have withdrawn. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you, right? He's there in the midst of the storm. Remember, you have a relationship with the sovereign of the universe and he's on your side. We forget that, right? So Jesus says, you've trusted God, trust me. This week I was reading the testimony of a young woman uh, who had come to know Christ, but before she had come to know Christ, she was suicidal. She had tried multiple times to, to kill herself. And she wrote this little summary paragraph that I thought was so profound. She said this, the wisdom of this world offers only survival. And that's what I did when I depended on the tools of this world. I merely survived. I didn't commit suicide, but I ached inside every day. When I met Jesus, he offered me so much more. He offered me restoration and a new life. He taught me that there was much more than surviving. There was overcoming. Now that'll preach. When you're sharing your faith, that will preach. More than survival, overcoming. That's precisely what Jesus is going to say to the disciples in chapter 16 when we get there. We will, I promise. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Trust in his promises, right? Friends, we don't overcome by our own strength. If you're trying to overcome your situation right now in your own strength, it's a doomed strategy. You're going to fall short. So we remember his sovereignty. We remember his goodness. Remember his promises. We stop believing the lies that the enemy wants to feed us. And in a spirit of thankfulness and praise, in the midst of the storm, we present our troubled hearts to Jesus and we trust that he's going to carry us through. That's the first remedy. Believe, right? Okay, let's look at the second remedy. Look at verses two and three. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. How important is this? They're so worried about Jesus leaving, but he says, this is why I'm going, to prepare a place for you. Verse three, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So your heart's troubled. Don't let it produce sinful anxiety in you. Instead, focus on this glorious promise that I have reserved for you an eternal place in my Father's house. First, believe in who I am. Second, trust that I have a place reserved for you in my Father's house. So look, once again, we acknowledge what is obvious. Life as a pilgrim in this hostile world is hard. We walk through what people have called a veil of tears, and we suffer heartache and loss and sickness and distress, and we wrestle with sin. It is so hard, isn't it? But friends, we are so close to being home. Our life is a vapor. I know it's hard. Every day is a battle. We are so close to being home. Do you believe that? 
Do you trust in that promise? You are so close to being home. Jesus says he's going away for this very purpose. And this is a part of the comfort that he's giving to his disciples here. He says to his friends, I know it's hard that you can't follow me, but it's to your benefit that I go away. This would have been hard for them to, after three years with them, this would have been hard to accept. It's better for you that I go away because I'm going to do something for you to prepare this place for you. What a comfort. Now, now what does he mean? Does that mean, okay, so Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father and he picks up his toolbox and tink, 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 starts building houses? I mean, he was a carpenter. No, what he's referring to in that moment was the work that he was about to accomplish on the cross, paying that outstanding debt for sin, which is going to open up the way for sinners to be welcomed into heaven. And then also the resurrection, where he's going to become the first fruits of those whose bodies will be trans- transformed into a glorified state suitable so that we can live in heaven. That's what he means by preparing a place for us. It's through the cross and through the empty tomb. So over the next three days after this scene in the upper room, Jesus is going to prepare this place for his friends and for you and for me by extension. But think about the language there, a place for you. If you've ever felt insignificant in this world, I want you to see what Jesus says there, a place for you specifically. A confirmed reservation in an eternal place where you belong as family. It's beautiful, right? There's a, there's a cultural and historical aspect to this. In ancient times, in ancient Israel, a father would build his house, right? He would raise his kids in that house. And then as each child grew into adulthood and got married, all right, get the tools out. We're going to add another room, right? And so they added a room onto the father's house so that this new family could start there. So the father's house kept getting larger and larger as new rooms were, be, were being built on. And all these new people were now being invited into This father's house. That's the picture here. It's an ever-expanding home filled with warmth, a very familiar place, a very comfortable place, a peaceful place where you are welcomed by not only the father, but by all of your siblings, where you can live for all eternity with them. This is our hope, is it not? Is it not our hope? Right now, we live in the already, don't we? We live in the already. We know that we're found in Christ. We know that we're in process of being conformed to his image so that someday we'll be ready for heaven. But we also live in the not yet. Right now we dream and we long for our eternal home and the fullness of God's promises in that. So this is what Jesus thought his disciples needed to hear in the midst of their trouble and darkness that night. It's interesting he doesn't go, hey guys, I want you to look down the road and think about all the great ministry I have for you to do. And all the evangelism and all these other things. He said, no, this is what they need in this moment. They need to remember who I am. They need to believe in me. And they need to know that I'm preparing a home for them. That there's a reservation there for them. That they'll be in the Father's house for all eternity. So so take note of this, guys. As you're dealing with trouble in this world, as you're distressed by the things that are happening around you, believe and know that you have a place in the Father's house. Amen? All right, so a quick aside, um, because there's a lot of confusion about this. Specifically, what did Jesus mean by my father's house? Now, I, I could do a whole sermon on, on the intermediate heaven and the, the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. No time. The elders won't let me. <laughs> Talk to them. 
<laughs> Adam's still like, do Revelation. Mm. But let me, let me briefly talk about this, and, and let me start by clearing up some language there in verse 2. How many of you guys grew up in the shadow of the old King James Bible? Okay. All right. Well, you know that this verse reads, verse 2, in my father's house are many what? Mansions. Mansions. Right? And so you pictured your future heavenly home as this palatial structure up on the hill, right? With 42 rooms and 26 bathrooms and, you know, rolling acres of green pasture and fruit trees and a big swimming pool in the backyard. All the, everything inside is, you know, gold plated and got a, for me, it's like this massive library study with a roaring fireplace. Man, I hate to let you down this morning. It's not a mansion. Oh, I hate this. The NASB, as you heard it, reads dwelling places. Most translations read simply rooms. Oh, man. <laughs> There's no mansions in sight. Okay, so the, historical geek time. The reason this happened was in 1611, when the King James Bible was translated, they were working off of Jerome's Vulgate Bible, the Latin, right? And so Jerome, back in the 4th century, had translated from some sketchy Greek manuscripts into Latin. And when he got to this word, he used the Latin word mansiones, which means lodging places in Latin. And then the English translator said, oh, that sounds like a mansion. And so they, they took the closest English word and put mansions. That's not what it means. The Greek word in the original text is much less spectacular than mansions. It's still going to be amazing, but it's not a mansion like you might think. The word is rooted in the verb meno, which simply means to stay or to abide. So it's best not to overthink it or overimagine what Jesus is describing here, but it's a, it's a room in the Father's house. Are we okay with that? Now, it might be the most, it's going to be the most glorious thing you've ever seen, this room. I believe that. Amen? <laughs> but it's a room, not a mansion. Okay. What we can say is, is two things. Number one, that he's describing some type of dwelling where the entire family of God, and think about this, perhaps tens of millions of people will live together, will abide together in this new Jerusalem for all eternity. Okay, so he's, I believe in this passage, he's looking beyond the millennial kingdom to the, to the eternal state, to the new heavens and the new earth. But we're all going to live together. And secondly, there's plenty of room for all of us in this dwelling place. That it is expansive, that every believer from every age, right, and every place around the world will all be able to live together. And we will spend eternity getting to know each other and worshiping the Lord. Uh, there's going to be so much to do. It's going to be amazing. So, okay, someday, guys. Heaven. We'll do a whole thing on heaven. All right. Now, as Jews living in the first century put, put on their sandals, when they heard my father's house, what do you think they thought? The temple. Very good. They would have thought the temple, right? Because to them, that's, that's the father's house. And Jesus had used that same term. Remember when he threw the money changers out? He said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves, right? So he used that phrase. But we also know that Jesus pronounced destruction on the physical temple in Jerusalem. Remember? He said, not, not one stone will be left on another. So, so Jesus used that terminology, but he also pronounced destruction on it. And it did. Obviously, it fell in the year 70 AD. So what did he mean? Well, here's, here's my take on this. Hebrews 9 really helps us to understand this. The author of Hebrews, specifically in chapter 9, talks about things on earth which are copies 
or models of the true reality in heaven. Ooh, doesn't that pique your interest? So there's things down here that we see that are very limited and very narrow, but they're copies or models of something far greater in the heavens. Here's what it says in, in Hebrews 9. For Christ is entered, okay, this is in the big pictures, entered not into holy places made with human hands, like the temple, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven itself, into the temple, the tabernacle in the heavenly places. Wow. So this physical temple in Jerusalem, the Father's earthly house, is somehow only a copy of Yahweh's actual throne in the heavenly realms. Now, this is where I started getting to think about this. When I was a kid, I used to do models. Anybody do models when you were a kid? Were anybody else a nerd like that? Like model airplanes and model... Jeff Steele did, I know that. Model ships. And one time I remember I, I, I did a World War II aircraft carrier. In fact, it, it looked... I just took a picture off the internet. It looked like something like this, like a cool... It was pretty cool. Maybe not that good. It was a little... You know, you get the glue all over the place and try to scrape it off, but it never totally comes off. It was really cool. But now, imagine comparing that little model of an aircraft carrier with the real thing. Anybody ever been on like a battleship or an aircraft carrier? Wow. And we look at that model and go, that's pretty cool. Look at the real thing. So apply that now. The temple in Jerusalem, pretty spectacular. In fact, one of the, one of the great ancient wonders of the, of the world. What might the heavenly temple be like? If, if it's, I don't know how many times more spectacular than that, just imagine where we're headed. Just let it sort of pique your interest, right? It gets me, it gets me all excited. What is it going to look like? It is going to be beyond anything we can fathom, right? Now, I'd love to share more details, but we got to be careful, right? Notice how Jesus, in, here in John 14, he doesn't elaborate, he doesn't go into a long description for the disciples. He gives them just a, a simple thing, right? He leaves them with this simple comfort that it's a family home and you're going to have a place for it. And as much fun as it is to speculate about heaven, we've got to be careful not to speculate too much. As one theologian has said, I love this quote, like God himself, heaven is a world we understand truly and yet fall far short of understanding fully. So God has given us enough to whet our appetites and pique our interests about heaven, but I think God knows we couldn't possibly even fathom what's to come. We know it truly, but we don't know it fully. And I've always liked this quote from Dr. MacArthur. He says this, Sometimes heaven is called a country because of its vastness. Sometimes heaven is called a city because of its inhabitants. Sometimes it's called a kingdom because of its ruler and order. Sometimes it's called a paradise because of its beauty. Sometimes it's called a house because of its family. It's the Father's house. And to me, that is the picture that gets me excited. House and home makes all the difference. Honestly, I don't care what it looks like. I'm sure it's going to be glorious. I just want to know that I'm home. I think that's, the, that's a longing in all of our hearts, to be home, to be finally home, to be, to be among a God who loves us beyond what we can understand, to be with brothers and sisters without sin, and to love each other perfectly. I just want to be home. Amen? Paul, Paul declared this in 1 Corinthians 2, and I think it's so important. No eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Be excited 
Heaven's beyond what you can even imagine right now. It's going to be amazing. Okay. Are we excited? All right. We talked about Peter. We, before we close, we've got to get to Thomas. Oh, Thomas. Thomas gets a bad rap, doesn't he? I've stopped calling him Doubting Thomas. Maybe I just call him Honest Thomas. Right? He is. He's super honest. He's super straightforward, even blunt. Verse 4. And Jesus says, And you know the way where I am going. And, and so I picture Thomas going, huh? What do you mean I know the way? He says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Again, I am so much like Peter and Thomas. Thomas wants an address. You know, give me, I, I want to punch it into my app. Give me GPS coordinates. I need details, Lord. I get it. He's just being brutally honest. But in response, then Jesus gives him this, I mean, one of the most famous statements in the entire New Testament, John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am. Believe in me. Now, this is the sixth of the seven great I am statements from the book of John. It's a very important one. So let's take a look at this. Now, we tend to look at this as a three-part answer, but the context indicates that Jesus is emphasizing that first part, I am the way. And, and, and why do I say that? Because that was Thomas's question, right? How do we know the way? So this idea that he adds on truth and life is sort of pillars of support for the fact that he is the way. Now make sure you understand what Jesus is saying and isn't saying here. He's not saying he's just a way shower, correct? He's not saying, I know the way to heaven, and so if you just come to me, I can point you that way. That's not what he's saying. There have been lots of religious figures that have tried to do that in history. Muhammad, right? Joseph Smith, all these guys. They thought they could point the way to God. Jesus is saying way more than that, right? As God himself, he's claiming to be the way. And there's a massive difference from sinful men like Muhammad and Joseph Smith. Jesus is our high priest who makes a way for us to go beyond that veil and enter into the Holy of Holies in the true temple in heaven. He creates the way into the, 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 the fullness of what we're going to experience someday. We can come with confidence, Hebrew says, to the throne of grace. That's what he's talking about here. The reason we have access to that throne without being fear of just being burned up in God's presence is because of Jesus' work as our high priest. So we enter through him. He is the way. Make sense? Now look at the other two pillars. I am the truth, Jesus said. Again, he didn't merely say, I'm a teacher of truth. Or if you come, I'll point you to what is true. He said much more than that. He said, I am the word. I am the logos of God. I am the manifestation of the eternal triune God. Right? I'm the embodiment of all reality in the universe. That is a big statement. I am the truth. And then he said, I am the life. Once again, he didn't merely say, I can tell you how to get to eternal life or how to attain eternal life. He himself is the creator of all things, Jesus, right? He's the source of all life in this world. And beyond that, he's the source of all eternal life. Man, we serve an amazing savior. He said back in chapter five, the son has life in himself. And having life in himself, he says, I give life to whomever I wish. He is the source of life. And then to, the, to these three articles, the way, the truth, the life, he then sums it up with this exclusive claim. 
therefore, no one comes to the Father but through me. Well, of course not. How could they? If this is the way, if this person is the way, there cannot be another. There cannot be another. Listen, as you're talking to people out there in the world and maybe you're out at the evangelism table at the mall or whatever, I have no problem debating with somebody about the identity of Jesus as God in the flesh. If somebody comes and they have, a, they have an objection to that, I will debate that all day. But I will not debate this when people come and say, well, Jesus never claimed that. Oh, yes, he did. Over and over and over again, he claimed to be God. And maybe nowhere more forcefully than right here in John 14. That's why we read in the call to worship earlier from Acts 4, why Peter is so forceful and clear in front of the chief priests of Israel. Do you know how, how gutsy you have to be to stand up in front of the chief priests of Israel and make those forceful statements? He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, you know, boom, by you, you rejected him. You're the builders, which has now become the cornerstone, he says. And there is salvation in no one else. No one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Man, that is a clear statement of exclusivity. So when you run up against the postmodern skeptics out there, you got to walk them through this path as Peter did. Yes, there is absolute truth. Yes, there is an absolute truth about God. Yes, Jesus claimed to be that absolute truth. The only way, the exclusive way. Either he's lying or he's delusional or he's absolutely correct. So choose wisely. Choose this day whom you will serve based on that information. Very simple, right? Okay, let me come back to where I started this morning. Come back to the Challies family. With all that said, now you've seen Jesus' advice. When you're troubled in spirit, you can choose to go and sin and do it all wrong and do it your own way and fall into all these you know, wicked paths, or you can do what Jesus said, believe, right? And then know that God has prepared a place for you in heaven. Here's how Tim Challies finished this heart-wrenching blog post. He says, the anchor of my faith held in the moment of the first alarming text messages I got, when the winds began to rise and the waters began to swell. It held again when I received the dreaded phone call, when the storm unleashed all of its fury and great waves began to pound against me. It held through the memorial and funeral services when the eye of the storm passed right over us with its, pre with its pre-natural calm. It held through the aches and the agonies that followed when I could barely hear above the howl of the wind, barely see through the driving rain. My faith, my anchor has held, but not because I've been rowing hard, not because I've been steering well, not because I'm made of rugged stuff, not because I'm a man of mighty faith. My faith is held fast because it's held firm in the nail-scarred hands of the one who died and rose for me. He, by his grace, has, had, has held me safe thus far, and he, by his grace, will hold me to the end. I have every confidence that my anchor will hold, that my anchor will be held, until he at last delivers me to that safe harbor far across these troubled seas. What a great application of this passage in John 14. I, I hope none of us ever has to go through this, but what a great example for us. Do not let your heart 
be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust that I have you in my hands, even in the midst of a storm bigger than you think you can handle. And know that I've prepared a place for you. And Jesus has prepared a place for Nick Challies. And someday he'll be reunited with his parents in glory in the Father's house. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church when they were struggling, when they were, they were in the midst of worry, he said, at the end of the day, at the end of this life, there's one thing that matters. We shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort each other with these words, he wrote. So let's do that now. Let's bow our heads. God, we, uh, we thank you for the practicality of your word, the way it speaks to the truth of the reality that we live in, the truth of our hearts, the truth of our nature, and just the, the, the practical counsel that you give us, Lord, that you gave to your disciples all those years ago that continue to echo up until our day. Lord, you say believe. Lord, help us to, to believe that you are sovereign, that you are good. Help us to believe your promises for us. Help us to, to know that you have us in your hands, to know, Lord, that we will be with you forever. And God, help us to endure in faith, even as the, the storms come and the waves rise up and we're not sure we're going to make it. Help us to endure, Lord, trusting in you and knowing that we're close to being home. Jesus, seal these truths to our hearts. Help us to recall them when the day of testing comes, that we might stand in that day, not because, not because we're strong in ourselves or strong in our own natural sense, Lord, but because you are with us, because your spirit is in us, and because we're leaning upon you. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Help us to praise you well now. In Jesus' name, amen.